Welcome to Brave Dynamics. This is your host, Jeremy Yao. Leadership is harder than looks. As a proven founder and Harvard MBA, I interview courageous entrepreneurs, executives, and investors every week. I also share my frontline experiences, coaching insights, and own professional development journey. If you're stepping up as a new leader, founding a startup, or venturing into the great unknown, this is the podcast for you. You are listening to the second episode of the Southeast Asia Tech Clubhouse recorded on 7 January 2020. In this episode, founders and VCs shared their predictions for Southeast Asia's tech scene for 2020, such as what investor sentiment would be like, as well as the startups to watch. If you are interested in joining us on our next episode of Southeast Asia Tech Clubhouse, sign up now at jeremyl.com. Nominations are limited and approved on a rolling basis. You can self-nominate or nominate someone who you think would fit the bill. You can find the episode's transcript and the podcast description. Let's dive right into it. So if anybody would like to be part of this conversation panel, feel free to raise your hand and uh, we'll just add you to the group for the panel. And we're just having a conversation about some of the things that we've been seeing for 2021. And obviously, we'll see whether we get it right. <laughs> I'm sure lots of people who made predictions for 2020 at the start of it got it wrong, <laughs> horribly. So it's going to be an interesting experience for us to have those conversations. So just for everybody who knows, this is on the record. So that means that, you know, we're recording this and we'll be sharing this via podcast later because there's actually a huge uh, couple hundred people who are interested in learning more about their currently Android as well and waitlisted on the Southeast Asia Tech Club uh, waitlist. Again, if anybody wants to speak, just raise your hand and then we'll go from there and I'll repeat this from time to time. Dev, do you want to say hi to everybody as well? Oh, hi. I just want to say hi, everybody. This is my first tech club i wanted to see like you know what sort of topic you plan to cover and i just had a question but it may be premature at the moment awesome that's good so why don't you just tell us what the question is well you know i'm looking at the macro environment and i was on a few like 500 star startup webinars last year mm-hmm. and i was thinking of like what is your opinion of if anyone else has an opinion of what the investor sentiment like is for 2021 yeah, happy to share quite a bit more about that. Anyone else out there who has questions, feel free to raise your hands and then we'll kind of go from there. Okay, great. So I think just prepared a few comments, but why don't we just jump, jump straight to it. I think at the, what we've been discussing with a couple of few folks is, let's just directly address that question is, you know, I think investors are obviously taking a much higher point of view on the region, right? So in actually the way that people are thinking about it is less about specific trends or Southeast Asia, but actually looking at the global macro environment first, then, you know, the region. And then thirdly, it's the kind of like different sectors that, you know, verticals that you could look at it. At a global level, I think what we're seeing is that growth is there. <laughs> the fundamentals, the world will continue humming along. And with COVID being a crazy 2020, we still expect 2021, 2022, 2025, you know, GDP will go up globally, right? Even though there was a shock to 2020. So there's still, you know, that high long-term optimism. And some people may argue is misplaced, but the world's going to continue going and there's still going to be growth. And a lot of that growth is going to come from technology, right? Startups. 
But I think we saw that in pandemic too, right? As long as there's a disruption, you know, incumbents lose to some extent, but and technology wins to some extent. Obviously, a lot of technology startups fail because of cash position or positioning. But it doesn't mean that if you look at it, the fundamental values of the economic drivers globally has been tech, right? And so I think tech startups and investing into it. Has proven to be in some ways a countercyclical investment, right? You know, when everything went down historically, you would invest in consumer goods, right? Because there was a defensive stock. But now we're starting to see tech as a countercyclical for certain types of global shocks, like a pandemic or in the future, you know, a zombie apocalypse, right? Then everybody would definitely be home <laughs> ordering stuff via Instacart or things like that. And so I think that's the global side. Dev, you want something to say something? So I was only reminded to ask it because yeah. I saw the recent news about the tech insurance company called GoBear. You know, they raised I think like ninety-seven million, and then they just announced either last week or this week that they have to shut down. So I was talking primarily about the global aspect, right? Like you know, if you look at the net value of investments, it's just saying that you look at aggregate tech. You know, in terms of revenues, in terms of what they're driving, they've definitely been able to grow over time. But of course, zooming in, I think you know, obviously, it's played out differently in different parts of the world, right? So zooming in on Southeast Asia side and the vertical side, right? And so I think Southeast Asia, obviously, for 2021, still has those fundamental growth drivers. You know, this recent Google and Tamasic report still sees not only digitization continuing but accelerating because of COVID. And expects the digital economy to even accelerate as well into 2025. And so I think 2021 is going to be part of that trend of Southeast Asia continuing to grow e-commerce in terms of GMV, digitization, SMEs use doing adoption, so and so forth. But zooming in, of course, I mean that doesn't those macros are favorable tailwinds for certain classes, certain verticals, and also certain types of companies and startups, right? So startups that were more well capitalized and have been preparing for 2020 to be a recession, were busy raising cash in 2019. You know, there's so many operators were having a conversation in the US was just like, we need to raise cash in 2019 because we think 2020 is going to be a recession. And obviously, it turned out way worse than anybody expected. But also, I mean, COVID was a unique one where it really impacted different types. Of verticals more, right? For example, if you look at say GoBear, and you know, we looked at other categories like travel, for example. It was interesting is that firstly, obviously, travel globally was impacted because business travels tanked. You know, no one's doing large conferences or events, and you know, international travel has dropped due to border restrictions. But we also see differential impact across different geographies. So we see like Southeast Asia is very different from China and America, where travel domestically. <laughs> For China, definitely has rebounded in a V-shaped recovery, and if you look at America, they've also seen a large rebound, for better for worse, you know, for the COVID dynamics there. But domestic tourism was strong enough for Airbnb to say, you know, we see great opportunity in domestic tourism for America, but also for our different larger markets, right? I think that there's also impacted Southeast Asia more because Southeast Asia's domestic tourism market is an order magnitude smaller because all. The different fragments into the ASEAN six and you know other geographies. Also, a large amount of travel came in from overseas, from America, and so so forth. So I think it's kind of 
we have to be quite careful to be like top down is like we don't want to be like too aggressive about saying just because digitization has been powerful for people and because Southeast Asia's macro drivers means that every company will succeed and startup will succeed. The answer is no, that's not true. But also I think conversely, the opposite dynamic, we also have to be mindful of that as well, which is we see companies failing or succeeding and we can't generalize that too much to Southeast Asia tech as well. So I think we just have to be mindful that again, the three things, there's the macro at the global and regional level. There's the sectoral component in terms of whether COVID has been a headwind or tailwind. And then lastly, of course, is you know individual startup company performance and how they had thought about a cash runway or what they were projecting. You know, for example, you look at Skyscanner and they had gone through massive layoffs, closed multiple hubs because you know they acted much more aggressively compared to other large tech travel incumbents in terms of best case slash worst case scenario. But then again, you know, Skyscanner's revenue is primarily based on travel, right? You know, regional travel, travel across borders versus other booking sites that are doing hotels or, you know, domestic tourism. And so I think we just have to be mindful that there's a spread of outcomes. And at the end of the day, the pandemic gives in terms of lifting some companies tremendously in terms of revenue, adoption, digitization, and it also takes away, right? You know, it's also taken away some of the weaker players. And that happens for any recession, right? It doesn't necessarily have to be COVID. It's interesting, it's both a recession, but it's also a pandemic, which is much more unique compared to prior recessions as well. Yeah, I just wanted to chime in on that. Thanks, Jeremy, for having me in this room. So I see kind of a few things happening, right, when it comes to kind of what VCs are looking for investors in this region. So outside of Gobert, which just announced that they are closing down after raising, what, close to $100 million, last year we saw two other companies, this is uh, public, I think Stocko, which raised over $10 million, one of the investors with Lightspeed, another company called Sociola, I think over $20, $30 million raised. They shut down in their operations as well. So what we saw, for example, towards the end of 2019 with the WeWork debacle on a company that's not being sustainable, I think I wouldn't say that companies in this region are reckless, but I would say VCs are now probably scrutinizing their business models, their unit economics, even more closer I-class kind of angle to see like, okay, if your business can be built to grow in good times, then how can your business last during the bad times, right? So I think investors generally will be a little bit more cautious despite the kind of macroeconomic factors that you mentioned, Jeremy, and the sort of digit- the acceleration to digitize companies across emerging markets. That's super true. Yeah, I just want to react to uh, what Hero said as well. Yeah, by the way, just a quick intro of myself. I'm a BC turned founder. Um, I've been in Singapore for the eight years, nine years now. So we looked at like early, early stage kind of uh, e-commerce, ad tech, travel. When I joined the VC firm in 2012, and then in 2016, I started a fintech company. I've been doing that for about four or five years. And even for us, right, I think 2019-18 was a really good you know, couple of years of us to really grow. We grew like 20-23% month on month. But even before COVID started, we made like a conscious effort to switch our mindset and focused on revenue. So I think that kind of worked out in hindsight because we were able to kind of weather the storm and kind of be a little bit more sustainable than kind of splurging and burning cash to for the sake of growth. Yeah, I think that's something that is really admirable heroes. You know, I think it was you know it's very fashionable to bit scale and grab land slash market share. And that kind of percolated at the, some companies that were able to execute that well, but it became a little bit too overused at the medium and small 
startups who honestly didn't have the capital advantage or the fundraising dynamics needed to do that. And of course, I think everybody would have, if you read a fine print on that strategy in, in, in the book, is saying like, hey, we're not taking into account macro shocks or random stuff that happens that may break this operating and fundraising model. So I think all the founders in 2019 were all saying, Let's, we need to raise cash, we need to raise cash because 2020, you know, conversely, a lot of investors were also saying, make sure to raise cash because we don't know what's happening. So Dev, I think, you know, hopefully that answers your question a little bit about the different postures that startups can have in terms of how aggressive the fundraising cycle is. And it works at different parts of the macro cycle. Yeah, thank you. Do you have another question, Dev? I'm just quite curious. I think that answers it quite well. Like, I think it was more or less along the lines that I agree, like the macro element is the growth picture is there. But I think as Jeremy was saying, there's sectoral components to consider and as Hero was saying, we can expect more scrutiny from investors. I think working at a startup at the moment, I think 2021 could be a pivotal year because, you know, I think we raised towards the end of 2018, early 2019, and we are gearing up for another raise in 2021. So, you know, I think it'll be interesting to see how it all plays out this year for us. Not really a question. I, again, like I didn't mean to put the topic on investor sentiment for this room because I understand it's more like predictions for 2021. So don't let me alter the theme here. <laughs> I mean, I think that's exactly a good question. And from prior feedback, you know, bottom up answering questions has been more helpful. So if anybody else here has questions, feel free to raise your hand and we're happy to invite you as a speaker and then you can ask your question as well. And one thing to think about as well is I think in the US, we also saw a bifurcation in the data between early stage versus later stage investing. So actually during the pandemic, early stage investing did not slow down in the US in terms of the data because angels and seed investors were still looking for deals, right? You know, they're still looking to deploy capital, there's dry powder, and they see an opportunity to do that. An idea that hadn't been considered before, like I saw so many angels and seed investors say something like, oh, we never thought about virtual events or virtual gifting or virtual acts, you know, as a category even. So it opened up investor point of view on what's interesting, but also opened up the aperture for founders to start tackling new ideas as well. And now for later stage capital, that's been much more cautious. The caution happened because for later stage investors, they're normally investing based on data, right? And for so many companies, even today, like, you know, it takes a quarter for the results to show, right? You know, for me, the company to react and surf the wave or to change and adapt their business model to take advantage of the pandemic, you know, it takes a quarter to execute and maybe it takes a quarter for it to show up as financial results, right? And as a result, that created caution in the later stage of the market as investors waited to see how these new deals coming in, what the real data showed for that. And conversely, of course, you know, support their existing portfolio companies who are also trying to solve or adapt or evolve. And I think that's something that's going to happen in 2021, I think, for certain sectors. Like some sectors, you know, there's a bull and bear case for vaccinations. But, you know, at some point in time, the world is going to get better around the COVID situation. So I think when we look at certain verticals, the question comes up is, do we see some of that gas? You know, does it keep going <laughs> or does it slow down, but it still keeps going and it still helps the vertical? Or does it invert, right, and not help this specific startup's approach to it, right? So I think that's going to be that question where people are like, oh, are we oversaturated for virtual meetings? Are we oversaturated for video calls? Are we oversaturated for ABC? And I don't think it necessarily slows down the conversation around the deals, but it definitely 
causes people to ask that question and say, okay, this is the macro environment. How do we feel about it? But at the end of the day, every year, it's another macro situation, right? If you think about it. I think you're right in the sense that it will become better in the future. From a personal and professional level, my question is more like timing because even let's say with the vaccines, right? There's a timeline, but no one's asking the question, which is like the elephant in the room, like, you know, mutations happen, vaccines fall behind the mutations. And then, you know, how long does it take for vaccines to catch up with the mutations? And what does that mean in terms of how it affects startups and so forth? Generally, how long is this affair? You know, some people are saying it's not a 2021 thing. It's probably a five-year affair. So I think definitely answer your question is, you know, there's always uncertainty at a macro environment, but I think people have better grasp at it, especially at a macro level and even at a vertical level. So I think maybe a helpful approach to think about it is like the bull versus the bear case, you know, and that at least creates some bounded thing, right? Like, let's talk about the bear case up front, right? The bear case is COVID mutates, vaccines don't work. I think it's kind of tricky because if we actually look at the technology, the reason why the West went with mRNA vaccines was because in January, the mRNA vaccine was already ready. It's just that he had never been deployed as a vaccine before, right? And so people were unsure about the safety. But what we do know is that if there's another mutation, you know, the mRNA vaccine is not only going to be adapted within a month, but it can be deployed and produced in that same month as well. And there's going to be much more bottom-up support for emergency authorization and usage of the vaccine. So in other words, it took us a whole year to get through the clinical trials. And the clinical trials are not just for this COVID vaccine, but the specific category of vaccine called mRNA vaccines. So in many ways, a pandemic like this is going to be less bad because now countries have the vaccine strategy, at least on the West, and also has the containment and lockdown measures. Again, it's going to vary country to country, right? You know, like for countries like Singapore or Vietnam or Thailand, it's going to be like, okay, you know, we're going to keep our policy like New Zealand of not letting other people in. And we're just going to keep growing our domestic market and be okay with it, right? So I think that's kind of the bear case is actually an order of magnitude better than what it used to be, right? And people are going to continue working from home. Tech employees are going to continue working from home without disruption. They already have their computers or their home setups. VCs are now comfortable with meeting online already and moving to virtual mixers like this. So I think that the bear case is actually magnitude better than what it was for last year. So I don't think we should overfit to that data. Again, if I'm massively wrong for 2021 and a zombie apocalypse happens because of the classic news montage, right? Infection followed by rush vaccine plus zombies. So then we'll go from there, right? But I think it feels like at least for the case of mRNA, it's an order of magnitude better. And of course, the bull case very quickly is the US vaccines are obviously fit for the West and have been, you know, shop supply, but we don't need 100% immunity, you know, herd immunity is already achieved. And so I think a lot of us are talking about we need to hit 60%, 70% hit, reach herd immunity. But I think the truth is that there's actually incremental gains by if we hit 30%, 40%, there's still an order of magnitude better in terms of death, economic activity. The 30 or 40% that get immunized are going to go out, go to party, you know, they're going to start traveling. That's going to start driving the growth and the snowball effect. And I think on the Southeast Asia side, you also see that the Chinese inactivated vaccine model, they're giving out a recipe to countries and 
Southeast Asia is able, has tons of manufacturing capacity for vaccines using the inactivated vaccine model, which does not require cold storage, which is easily manufactured, it's very straightforward. So I think there's actually a bull case where countries like Indonesia and India, for example, that have this manufacturing capability are able to not only get started, but just deliver a lot more, right? So I think that's something to be mindful about. There's actually millions and millions of doses stockpiled. So I think that's something to be mindful about. I got to jump off to a lunch meeting, but I just wanted to kind of give my two cents on where I think 2021 is headed in terms of tech. So there's two things, right? One, I feel that there's going to be consolidation. As you probably see, there's going to be like good assets, right? Good business models that's been running, but they might be running out of cash, doesn't need to raise capital. And we see guys like Grab, of course, now that with the digital banking license, they may want to add something complementary to their core service offerings, right? And then who knows, the uh, Grab, like the Gojek Tokopedia merger might happen, and they might even spin out a digital bank in Indonesia, where because I think Gojek just uh, acquired a you know, minority stake in the bank. So I think we might see consolidation uh, across different sectors, fintech, e-commerce, and so forth. So that's one kind of thought that I have. The other one is, as yeah, Jeremy, you mentioned, you know, I think businesses, VCs, are now getting used to doing things differently. So perhaps one way to think about where the opportunity lies is, okay, there were these clear winners during COVID, right? Zoom, digital payments, e-commerce. How can we add on complementary services on top of those apps that will be nice for, for the users of those services to have? So I think somebody was mentioning about like a Zoom app, was it like a Zoom app kind of thing? And kind of riding on that rocket to scale. And I think this happened when like, you know, when, when PayPal partnered up with eBay. eBay was PayPal's rocket. If it wasn't for eBay, PayPal would have not scaled until this size. So that's where I think the opportunities are going to be coming to 2021. Awesome. All right. So who else has a question and happy to answer them? Yeah. It's Clifford here. One is a question. The other one is more of like a discussion that I thought would be cool to hear about from everyone else in the room. I think the first question was, is in Southeast Asia, what particular industries are, are the VCs and like the big boys are looking at currently for Southeast Asia uh, for 2021? There's so much turmoil and understanding the macro in the macro environment is a bit very different from the global VCs and the Southeast Asia VCs. And number two, I'm just wondering what everyone thought about all these big tech giants from China coming in to Singapore and hiring and opening up the HQ here, what would be the short-term and probably like mid-term effects in terms of hiring and how much it will like drive prices up in terms of talent and how that will affect the deal flows and how much people raise. Hey Clifford, I can't answer to the first part, which is kind of macro thesis. I, I work at Grab on the product side, but I can definitely answer to your second part of the question, which is what is the influence of these big Chinese tech companies coming into Singapore and, and scooping up talent. And I can speak to it from firsthand experience of what we're seeing in Grab. Grab, pretty large company. Obviously, we're constantly hiring people. And what we're seeing is that there is huge demand right now for product managers, for engineers, for designers. And people from our own team are not only getting like poached by the likes of like ByteDance and Tencent, but even like Facebook and Google, right? Because not a lot of new EPs are moving across the world during a global pandemic. So you have less inflow of, of kind of net new tech talent to Singapore with the increase of some very strong companies, right? ByteDance especially, that are poaching a lot of talent. So talent is very scarce in tech engineering. And I only see that 
trend getting worse as time goes on. Maybe after the pandemic is over, there are going to be more people moving to Singapore, hopefully. So that's my two cents on that. Amar here. Just a follow-up on that. Is there a positive side to it as well from, you know, Singapore becoming a greater hub to attract engineering talent? Like in the past, there were a lot of regional offices, more business-oriented, less engineering, R&D, tech-oriented. But as this trend builds up, probably more talent gets attracted there. Yeah, definitely. I think what I always like to think about is the winners and the losers, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, this is the case for every situation. There's never a pure, like, everybody wins. There's no pure, everybody loses yeah. situation. So, yeah, I mean, Chinese tech companies coming to China, coming to Southeast Asia. In this case, a lot of them are headquartering in Singapore. Obviously, it's a win for Southeast Asia consumers because, you know, they have more optionality. Chinese companies are going to deploy services and so, so forth. It's obviously a win for Chinese companies who need a place to shelter the capital and some employment decisions and provide growth vertical because they don't feel like U.S. is that source of new investment or growth. It's obviously a win for engineers who are based in Singapore as well as engineers because and product managers who are getting pushed because now their salaries are going to go up by 1.5x. It's a win for the Singapore government in this scenario because obviously digital banks and all these other things is going to help drive up wages, drive up taxes, drive up innovation. But it's probably a loss for some people, right? It's a loss for DBS and incumbent banks, right? Because the four digital banks that are launching, they're going to push talent from the banks and from Grab and everyone else. You know, it's a loss. Probably a big chunk of their best performing engineers are going to walk out, right? Once it launches proper. Um, I think for the top incumbents, I don't really think it's a loss because, you know, you're always competing against top talent, right? I mean, for Grab is always competing against Facebook, Google, like these global top talent. But I think for all your middle chunk incumbents, right? Wherever, engineers or wherever, right? You're an engineer at Capital Land, you know? You're an engineer at anywhere, right? And it's just going to be like, why does it take a shot and shift to the tech industry, right? Because there's so much demand or retrain. There's a whole bunch of winners and losers, obviously. Obviously, short term is going to be painful for a lot of employers. But over the medium and long term, I think it's going to be obviously a net plus for Southeast Asia in many ways, yeah. Thanks. Yeah, I used to be at Standard Chartered and I spent some time in Singapore before moving to Silicon Valley here. And I saw that we at Standard Chartered had started losing some smart engineers, you know, even to the likes of Grab and a few others. So I think you're very right on that incumbents feeling the, the pain on talent. Yeah, and I think what's also interesting is we're probably going to see the rise of regional remote work slash offshoring as well from Singapore. I mean, historically, you know, obviously, you know, the U.S., you know, were offshoring to Russia or to Europe or whatever it is, right? You know, different parts of the states. And obviously, they're going regional as well in terms of remote work. But I think, you know, Singapore is starting to have to see the same dynamics where every team is basically going to start saying, we need to think regionally in terms of talent search. We just got to find the best engineer, the best PM, wherever they are in Southeast Asia. And unfortunately, borders are closed and, you know, EPs are difficult to get along with every country's citizenry being pretty wary about international travel or immigration. So we just got to get them started, right? <laughs> you know, we just got to hire them and get them started wherever they are, right? And that's good, right? Because I think that means that Singapore is going to become a net generator of remote jobs for the region as well. So I think it'll be interesting, you know, I mean, and in Vietnam, we already see so many people, tech talent who are kind of, they're either working for a Vietnamese company or a contract company working for an American company or working for a, a regional company, right? So I think that's pretty interesting. But I think that comes back down to my first question, right? Knowing that all these, I mean, in the Southeast Asia's macroeconomic conditions, what do you think are the interesting bets industries for Southeast Asia? 
yeah, I mean, you know, feel free for others to kind of share. I feel like there's nothing going to be very special or unique because I think if you go to any webinar with VCs, everyone's going to say the same things, right? <laughs> you know, it's like COVID, okay, accelerated ton of digitization of new users. What are they going to be doing? Why are they going to be buying? Why are they going to be using? Some of it is the consumers using it. Some of it is businesses adopting it. So I think there's a lot of questions that are still being sorted out right now, which is, you know, different countries due to the lockdown strategy or COVID strategy has different impacts on digitization and how they're using those tools. Amari, you want to say something? Yeah, I mean, one thing that I notice, especially in Asia, there's a huge rise in the services revenues around use of or migration to cloud, new security tools. So not just the product side of it, but the services side is also, you know, seeing a huge growth in, in revenue, especially around cloud and security. Yeah, I think definitely true. I think we've seen a lot of movement in B2B and small media enterprise adoption of tools over the past year. And I think that's obviously shown up in the numbers, right? You know, for what's hot in terms of deals. Yeah. And that's probably still going to keep going, right? I mean, the whole definition of hot deals is being hot, right? <laughs> they don't stop being hot suddenly for the next series round. Yeah. And then when they do that, then there's a whole bunch of founders who are going to start saying like, okay, maybe that's crowded or you know, maybe to double down on that. But, you know, they might be saying, like, let's build that for new geographies, right? That not just Indonesia, but let's look at Philippines or Myanmar, you know, depending on how much risk appetite they have in building at a frontier market and how early you want to be. So that's one bet is like probably diffusion of existing trends in, you know, the top markets like Singapore, Vietnam, Indonesia, diffusion of that to different geographies, either through market expansion or through founders, you know, localizing it uh, with a different approach. I think the second question, of course, is deeper thinking, like, if these things are true, like, let's just say, if we have accounting <laughs> or books being done at the SME level, what new tools could potentially be built on top of that in the next five years, right? Can we build HR? Like, you know, you can't do HR systems without payroll accounting, yeah. right? You know, so if the fintech founders are doing their job well, and they're helping them do payroll, helping them figure out their accounting stuff, then it makes it much easier to build a HR stack on top that's not just a directory or a thing, yeah. but actually hooks deeply and makes the job easier for administrators, right? So I think that's something to be thinking about in, in multiple levels, yeah. One question I had was just out of interest, the story of Stripe as a sort of API for online commerce. It's been going strong and I've seen, you know, some countries, Stripe, like startups come up trying to do the Stripe for that market. I don't think Stripe is big yet in Southeast Asia, but we haven't seen a local competitor like a regional API-based online merchant commerce platform come out, right? Like, I mean, I think Grab has Grab Pay, but that's likely the, the more in the wallet and and that space versus just pure merchant payments. Is there a big market there, a big opportunity that something's missing? Well, love for Don to share his thoughts on this as well. I'll take a first crack at it real quick. The truth is there's lots of people doing different pipes, right? At different layers, right? I mean, you know, finance is such a huge set of flows, right? So I think obviously Stripe is coming in and I think they have the benefit of scaling a ton of flow across borders and they have the ability to spread that cost of regulatory compliance and UX and device adherence standards, right, to UX across a massive base, right? So, you know, I think the truth is it's pretty much a juggernaut in its the ways they find it. 
Another way to think about it, though, is that there's still so many different types of layers still available. We see Zendit, for example, X-E-N-D-I-T. I think recently on my podcast, I just interviewed, it's coming to be released soon, but, you know, engineer number one, he's going to talk about some of the dynamics there. But I think that's something that is just to be mindful about is I think there are alternatives, one, and two, I think we're going to see innovation at different layers of it. Don? Jeremy, you make a very good point here, and I think this is why it doesn't work in Southeast Asia just yet, is Stripe has a lot of money, and they can outlast most any startup, in my opinion, who is trying to go cross-border e-commerce payment embedding. And actually, the ex-head of Southeast Asia for Stripe, I mean, she's a venture, she's a VC now, but they have a very, very strong presence and have been in Singapore and Southeast Asia for a while. So I think if like, you know, you want to go with the whole embedded finance thesis around what is going to work in Southeast Asia, I'd actually look at Plaid as a really interesting oh, yeah. and compelling company to sort of copycat elsewhere, especially in Southeast Asia. And I say that because I actually spoke with one of the heads of um, Plaid's venture arm. And one thing that they literally outright said is, they're terrible at international and that they've tried to go in multiple regions and have not been able to. And as a result, I think that's a huge opportunity that, you know, we see from YC where there is quite literally a plaid for X region. And so I do think that is going to be very pervasive in the next year or two in Southeast Asia. I forget the name of the company, but there are like one or two companies trying to build the plaid of Southeast Asia right now. And I think that's cool because I do think this whole open data initiative, what we've seen both in the US as well as Europe, there's a very clear playbook in a way, especially internationalization playbook. Can I ask a follow-up question on your plaid comment? And the question is, do you get any insight on why it's hard for them to, to do international? I mean, you would assume at their scale, it's a matter of resources and time, right? So this is pre-M&A. So I mm. think that a part of it was they just didn't have the right focus or I think they thought really this whole regulatory route was a lot harder than they expected, right? Mainly, one thing you can think about it is they are still very much regional plays. And as a result, I think trying to look at Southeast Asia and say, let's build out the plaid for Southeast Asia and working on six, five different types of banks, standards, compliance, probably made it really tricky. post MA, obviously, I think is just not on the roadmap at all anymore. But I know a very recurring investment thesis for YC, and I say this as a investor from a, a YC alumni fund, is that there is now a plaid for the Middle East, there's plaid <laughs> for Latam, there's plaid for all... There is not a plaid, though, for Europe, just because they've actually instilled this as a law. But other than that, though, I think that's going to be a really cool one. And then just to piggyback off that really, really quick is another trend I see in Southeast Asia now slowly taking off here is this notion of embedded finance. And what I mean by that is how do you almost use existing software such as accounting software like Xero or QuickBooks or whatever might be the soup du jour of Southeast Asia? And how do you use that as sort of your backdoor to, for example, underwrite? SMBs, right? I think banks in general are notorious and not being good at handling digital data. I think it's even trickier when banks are trying to handle SMB uh, purchasing data or sales data. And I think, you know, companies like Spendmo will have a very good time and have a big opportunity to sort of be that underwriter 
for these banks, right? But also still be sort of that back office financial software and tools that SMBs can use pretty easily. And I'm not talking about the digitally native or digitally first companies. I'm talking about hopefully maybe it starts with like more like not mom pa shots, but maybe restaurants that actually have a POS or something. So I'm really excited just because I do know that banks would love to partner with these sorts of startups because it gives them additional data points to actually properly underwrite. And in a zero interest world, and obviously that's a little different in Southeast Asia, finding ways to earn additional yield or revenue. Uh, just a quick one to Don, though. Like, my question would be if the biggest group that is hurt from COVID would be the SMEs, can they really be a viable target group? for digital businesses as a steady source of income during the pandemic? Yeah, sorry, just to jump in here. So Don, after you react, then Ritesh uh, is going to speak after that. Yeah, so Don, go first, Don. Totally. Yeah, I think so. One of the things we talk about at YC and one of our investment pieces here is like for these sort of like fintechs who want to address SMBs, I think that that's the right go-to-market, right? Instead of just saying, what's my edge, SMBs? I think they should be finding like the edge of the wedge, right? Whether that's like nail salons or, you know, any sort of specific business that uses digital software. And I don't think Southeast Asia is in this third world where no one uses it. I think if you can even say, yeah, there's at least 5,000 SMBs that use XYZ software for finance or accounting. That's all you really need. And I think, frankly, why I think SMBs could perhaps be very interesting in Southeast Asia is that they're an emerging segment. And I think they're only going to grow more, very similar to how we saw startups grow in the US, right? The, the stack to start a business in a company is so so much cheaper to do now versus even five years ago, what alone 10. So I think it's a growing segment that should be pretty good for fintechs. Hey guys, Satish here. I'm at Grab leading the payments for uh, multiple payment integrations that Grab does across the region. So I think it's a very relevant question, like why we don't have a single stripe or plate in this part of the world. But one thing that we miss out on is the underlying infrastructure. So unlike the West, the payment infrastructure here isn't very mature. So if you look at Malaysia, if you look at Indonesia, Philippines separately, the infrastructure is very different. And the adoption of cards isn't as high as what it is in Singapore. So what my experience tells me when I have worked in Grab is that it takes a lot of time to build those local integration and set up that basic infrastructure. So one of my predictions is that in future, maybe end of this year or next year, we will see some companies which are becoming regional players in this. Could be Zendit, could be Razor, could be Midtrans from Gojek. But it's going to happen at some point. And this lack of infrastructure is what I guess is causing a delay in having that local player in this market. That's a super fair point, Ritesh, which is I think people just underestimate that a lot of people are based in Singapore, right? And so it's like Singapore is not Southeast Asia, right? And, you know, we got to build the pipes and whoever's going to invest in the real, you know, humbling work of actually laying those pipes is also going to benefit a ton, but also create a lot of value for people who are going to build on top of it that we take so for granted in the rest of the world. I think Dev also, I just want to address one quick point he had, which is, you know, I think you look at SMEs and saying like they've been you know lost in the past 2020, but... I think one interesting thing is if you look to like e-commerce or you look at a lot of small retail, actually there's an interesting bifurcation of the results for SMEs, right? Which is that we have seen some SMEs doing very poorly because they are not able to digitize or react. 
but we also see some SMEs actually doing incredibly well because they were either led by people who are more nimble or you saw second or third generation SME owners kind of like digitize and move online. And I think one thing that why SME is always so interesting globally is that in many ways, if you try not to think about them on an individual level, but you look at them as a sectoral level, they are the fastest to innovate and find new models to adapt to whatever it is, right? In this case, a pandemic, but uh, it can be a recession and things like that. And so I think that's still going to be a huge driver of growth in terms of demand, in terms of consumption, in terms of wealth creation. So I think the question is more like, it's going to get better macro, it's going to get better at the SME level, but we can't make individual bets on the SME, but to say like, how do you build a company that creates value as a layer and is patient enough to nurture that across different geographies. The other thing that should be considered here is like, we think of SMEs as an actual company of multiple people, but I think there's going to be this rising tide of single person LLC equivalents, right? And how do freelancers really be a company of one? And I think that's going to be a pretty pervasive trend you see in the next year or two also. Wrapping up here in the last uh, 10 minutes, any other questions uh, that people have about predictions for 2021? Hi, Jeremy. Hidayah here. Thanks for having me. I'm a news editor based in Singapore. And my question is for everyone here, actually, over the last year, apps like Calm, Headspace, BetterHelp, Endel, even astrology apps, these have obviously gotten a lot more attention. I'm just wondering what kind of technological trends are you seeing or predicting in the mental wellness space over 2021, specifically in Southeast Asia, because I'm not really seeing any newcomers in this space. You know, maybe Razor could have a go. That's my first question. And my second question would be, in terms of innovating in the mental wellness space, do you think that there are entry barriers in Singapore specifically, or is it a culture thing? You know, I don't really see any companies kind of stepping up. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I'll give a crack at it and then happy to hear everyone else's take on it. You know, I think I'll be frank, as a founder, I've definitely looked at the mental health space multiple times and I've actually, you know, built MVPs and things like that and testing. There's two conversations that are happening, right? I think the first conversation is, is there a need for mental wellness and health from a consumer side? That's one. And then two is, can it be a startup or should it be a startup, right? I think that's two different conversations, right? So I think the first part is, yes, there is demand globally in the US and Asia. And I think obviously in Asia, this you know, goes without saying the stigma. I think it shows up in different ways. An American describes depression as actually shows up differently in Southeast Asia, actually in different geographies, in different, you know, urban versus rural, right? It's actually not described the same way. And it's just a show, poor mental wellness shows up in different ways. And there's actually interesting psychological literature and research around that. Of course, as the world globalizes, it's interesting that there's a convergence on mental issues, kind of converging in terms of symptoms, but also convergence in our treatment approaches and pedagogies and how we intend to do that. And user slash consumer acceptance that we can tackle that using that problem for example, meditation or pills or things like that. So I think the truth is there is increasing consumer demand and there's increasing convergence on the understanding of the problem. I think the second question you're asking, and obviously is just like, how is that approach from a tech perspective? That's one layer, which the answer is yes. I think there's a lot of opportunity to tackle that from a tech perspective. And I think we see that in the States, like therapy in person is painful, hard to do in the pandemic, you know, really expensive 
focus on the cost of labor is affected in it. So it prices it out of the reach of many people, quality, substandard. So I think tech and innovation is going to be there. So I think there's an opportunity. And then the next layer of that question is whether that's a startup, right? And whether it's VC backable and so on and so forth. And I think that's something that we see, I think two ways of that mental wellness. I think one about seven years ago, I think there's one wave. And I think more recently, there's another wave of mental wellness startups as well. So the question is, if you're approaching this from an investor, that's one approach. But I think if you're approaching it from a, would I want to found something like this? Sure. I think there's demand. You know, I think the question is, how do you build that as a business that is open to different types of growth paths, right? Whether it's a slow one or a faster one, a bootstrap one or a VC-backed one. I think there are different approaches for you to be mindful about. I think I'm also, thanks for your answer, by the way. What I'm really noticing that's standing out is more analog products. I think there are a lot of decks and also these anxiety tools, you know, like stress balls and all that. So I find that very interesting that this is the consumer approach in this region and as opposed to elsewhere. Well, I mean... I would definitely say that in the US, there's lots of products for mental wellness. So I feel like maybe like Southeast Asia is just catching up to it. I wouldn't say that it's to a very novel approach. I mean, there's plenty of perfumes and stress balls in the US. Don? I think just cultural. <laughs> I think wellness is still seen as weakness in Asia in general. And this is obviously generalizing it. But I think that it's just this thing that is seen that can be overcome. And so perhaps... The go-to-market you'll see for wellness is not going to be about, you know, overcoming depression or sadness. I think perhaps it's about coaching and education. How do you level yourself up, right? And so maybe those sorts of go-to-markets will really make wellness a far more topical thing for people to, like, be interested in, right? Or, like, who knows? If you can convince parents that talking to your kids about XYZ on a weekly basis with you know, an app or something. No, I think there's definitely a lot of consumer spend that would love to pay those for those sorts of services. Don, I think you raised an incredible point there, which was like, I think the embedding of that as well. I think a lot of founders are going to take that approach. I think not just in the Asia, but also in multiple parts of the world in the US, right? Another thing as part of it is, I was reading this very interesting profile, but you know, it talks about like skills, you know, retraining, you know, unemployment, and obviously a lot of education tech or like reskilling schools are, you know, tackling that problem. I can't remember which article it was, but I think, you know, they're just talking about how they were just incorporating positive psychology and different like tools in terms of their design principles and how they were deploying the product in terms of the instruction. Because if a job seeker may come to an app for example, looking for a new job, but in order for them to be successful, they may need to rethink their psychology or their stress or improve how they interview, for example. And all that requires from the app side, a thoughtful thinking through the application and the language. We try to explain to a lot of our friends who are tackling the mental wellness space because they know I've tackled it or at least tried to. It's just like, I think it's possible to tackle mental wellness from a therapeutic perspective, which is pills, therapy, and being directly, aggressively upfront and saying like, our job is to help you when your pain is at, you know, a 10 out of 10 or 9 out of 10. We're going to dial you down to, well, if you're at 10 out of 10, you're probably all the way at medical services. But if your pain is at a 7 or 8, we can dial you down to like a 6 or a 5, right? You know, for some apps, there's a painkiller app. But there's also a lot of vitamin psychology apps 
that are embedding their thoughts where they're helping you dial down your anxiety from a four down to a two, right? And it helps because, you know, for so many people who have mental wellness issues, they start out around a one or two and then it escalates because of bad employment situations and goes from a two to a four to a six to an eight to a 10, right? So for people who do care about mental wellness, I think everybody can play a role. All of us in this, in this room can play a part in how we deal with people, how we embed products, things like that. Yeah, I got a question for the VC folks here. I want to know if there is a change in mindset, if now somebody is coming up with a mental health or related idea, are you guys more inclined and ready to take a higher risk to fund them than compared to 2019 or 2018? Is this geographically bound? I guess it is since we're in Southeast Asia. (laughs) Yeah. I think it's a bit more de-risked from previous years, I just think that I think there may still take some time for it to be a standalone of like wellness, as opposed to perhaps a doc doc or whatever other more broadly healthcare apps, right? And incorporating it maybe as a feature for prevention or preventive medicine. So yeah, to answer your question, yes, I am more willing to take a risk now. I just think that there's just so many cultural norms that you have to overcome and you know i think that's just like embedded culture that's going to take a while yeah i mean i think another way to say it as well is the macros are there you know consumer adoption consumer spend in the region for example you know at the end of the day i think vcs are lagging (laughs) signals right you know and the true leading signals are going to be founders who choose to build it and if they can build it in a way that's not only sound business-wise but also shows startup economics Thank you so much. That comes up effectively to time. And, you know, for people who are interested, uh, we'll be making this a regular uh, weekly uh, kind of like series. Uh, so this is something that's an opportunity for people to hear more about and uh, discuss as well. 